Welcome to the Brownstein Hyatt Farber Shrek podcast series. The United States Mexico Canada agreement has been signed by each country's respective leader, but its fate now rests in the hands of legislators. Past difficulty enforcing NAFTA labor standards have left members of Congress weary and cautious. Mark Baggage moderates a conversation with Lori Haru, Milan Dalal, and the newest addition to the Brownstein team, former House Foreign Affairs Committee Chair Ed Royce, in which they discuss the trade agreement's probability of success and shed light on the global impact of it failing. Thanks for listening to another Brownstein podcast. I'm Mark Baggage, and today I'm joined by my colleagues. Lori Haru, Milan Dalal, and the latest addition to the Brownstein team, my former colleague in the Congress, Ed Royce. The topic of the day is trade and the United States-Mexico-Canada agreement. Let me first start, if I can, Mr. Chairman, uh, former chairman of the House Foreign Affairs Committee, Chairman Royce. Um, let me ask you, what do you think, and I guess, you know, your role there in Congress and how Congress will play in this great debate. Kind of give me your sense of how these trade agreements, especially this one, uh, and how Congress will play. In other words, what's their what's their role going to be, and, and is the president going to listen? I think as you as you look at the structure of the debate, clearly the Speaker of the House uh, has the authority and responsibility here of moving the bill through the House of Representatives. So the first question is uh, what's her perception of the agreement? And as she has articulated, if there's no enforcement, there's no treaty from Mm -hmm. her standpoint. Mm -hmm. So what she has said is that there needs to be an action taken on labor rights, especially in Mexico. Remember, Congress feels burned uh, to some extent in the past by lack of enforcement mm-hmm. by what happened in Mexico. So the and enforcement by uh, treaties in the past. Exactly, uh, under NAFTA for example. So in this particular case in Mexico there is legislation labor legislation moving through the Mexican Congress that would address these concerns. And so there is a a coincidence here that the new government in Mexico was already campaigning on democratization of unions and having people choose their unions, choose their own representatives. So there's the possibility here that these will dovetail in time for this to pass the Mexican Congress, our Congress, and then the Canadian Parliament. What do you think, and I guess I'll turn to Milan, um, you're walking the halls, the chairman's just fresh out of the hill, uh, and has, you know, listens and hears from his colleagues. What what are you hearing in regards to some of the issues that are that are hot buttons. I know labor is one. Uh, there's great debate on what that will be. I know on the Senate side, there's some real activity by a couple members on that. But what's when you look at this trade agreement, what's the hot buttons that are going to pop that are going to challenge both caucuses in the sense of how to resolve this, maybe on the House or the Senate? Yeah, absolutely. I think Chairman Royce is absolutely right. Labor and enforceability is a major issue, particularly with Mexico. We'll see how the Mexican Congress appropriately addresses that later this month. But there remains a question about implementing the labor reforms in Mexico as well. And Speaker Pelosi has held that out to say it's not sufficient for them just to pass it, but they also have to implement it and see how well it's implemented. Biologically, 
projects and the intellectual property protections associated with that. The trade agreement enshrines 10 years of IP protections. That's a really big issue for a number of Democrats in the House. And then you mentioned um, the Senate. Um, as, as you noted, uh, Senators Wyden and Brown are trying to work out uh, a deal. They, they certainly agree with Speaker Pelosi about the labor and enforceability provisions. They're trying to work something out uh, using a model from past trade agreements. And on top of that, the uh, chairman of the Senate Finance Committee, Chuck Grassley, who has jurisdiction over this issue, has also raised the issue of the aluminum and steel tariffs that continue to apply to uh, Mexico and Canada. He would like to see them lifted as a precondition of uh, passage. Lori, do you think, I, I guess when I look at these trade bills and when I was in the Senate, you know, I voted on some, voted against some based on conditions in, in, in the uh, bills themselves, do you, in the treaties, do you think it, here's the Republicans kind of thinking about it, and you work a, a lot with the Republicans in the sense of what they're thinking or what their issues are. Here we're moving into a 2020 election cycle. How important it is is it for the Republicans to get this done? Do you think there's movement on something that they might have to give up in order to get it done, or is it a priority? Well, I think it's definitely a priority. Obviously, the Republicans have usually been the uh, the party of trade, of right. international trade, free and there's trade. There's a conflict now from the administration and what I would call traditional Republicans. Well, there's no question that the changes on trade. Been, yes, there's well, on other things too. <laughs> but um, today's trade. <laughs> yes, um, there's no question with the new USMCA that um, there are some things that are in the Republicans don't like. They would like to see some changes made in the investor state dispute settlement issues. Um, they don't like the fact that the agreement will now sunset after 16 years. But they also realize there have been some improvements made in it, namely an enforceability that they, too, support. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I think they're just – well, one, on a political side, they're also very um, pleased to have heard a number of their Democratic colleagues actually now say that NAFTA is good and we should keep it and um, not get rid of it when they've – for the last couple of decades, they've been saying NAFTA is go. very bad, right? right? So in some ways, they feel like a lot of progress has been made. Mm -hmm. And um, – I think in many ways they're just watching and seeing um, what's going to happen on the Democratic side and a little bit to the point that you asked Milan. You know, it can't also be forgotten or underestimated that the Democratic caucus in the House has 67 new members. Mm -hmm. These are 67 new members who have never had any – most of them have never had any experience in the legislative process. Especially on a treaty. In a right. trade agreement. And, a trade ag and trade agreements are very complicated, mm -hmm. and there are very specific rules that they have to follow. But um, so Speaker Pelosi and her caucus are going through a big uh, education process right now. And I do know that the administration is speaking to the Speaker's office frequently and trying to understand exactly what they need in enforcement. But really, it's just about the fundamentals on trade, what's good, what's bad, what they need, and coming to some kind of agreement internally so the administration can work to try and address those concerns. Do you think, and, and I guess to Chairman Royce, I mean, do you think within the Republican caucus, maybe on the Senate side or the House side, either group, is there, you know, I think of the Democratic side, especially the House, you, you have a very progressive group, you have the blue dogs, then you have the kind of, again, traditionalists kind of in the middle, and there's a push and pull that's going to happen, especially around labor, environmental standards, human rights standards, all those things. In, in, in the Republican side, are we seeing similar arguments or is it kind of like we just want to get the business done and get the trade moving and we'll tweak where we have to? I think what's unique here is this is the number one 
trade priority of the administration and mm-hmm. at the same time for farmers across the country and especially for the automobile industry the stability of being able to move trade across those borders it affects uh, half a billion people mm-hmm. and it's a trillion dollars in trade mm-hmm. and so there is just such an impetus, impetus right now uh, in agriculture and in manufacturing that I suspect that there's going to be a great deal of support in the House for the legislation. Let me ask you on the auto and whoever wants to answer is too, on the auto industry, you know, they, they're a big player when it comes to this. They're concerned at times because of side letters or special agreements and, you know, things that may not be exactly in the treaty or in the trade agreement. But what in in the and that one kind of is it's a union issue but it's also a job issue so it has this kind of weird you know both republican and democrats they will argue from different points of view but it seems like that one is going to is that a cabal that's going to kind of be in this mess it's a problem there's a possible solution mark in the sense that in 2009 when we did the the uh, agreement with peru the enforcement issue there went to the environmental question of illegal logging. And so as part of that agreement, the Peru Annex set up a uh, system whereby we could actually audit, verify, and shut down imports if we caught them cheating on the environmental consequences. Right. That Illegally chopped wood and then resold to American markets. Precisely. Right. The inclusion of that annex set up a precedent which now could be used in terms of enforcement mechanisms here. So when we talk about how to how to satisfy members of the House that we won't have some of the same problems we saw through the histories of lack of enforcement, the opportunity to have the ability to cut off imports, to do inspections, to do the types of things that you have under the Peru Annex Agreement, uh, that is something that could be applicable here, could be included uh, as a sidebar agreement. And so I suspect that that may be a way forward. And that's one way to get the auto industry acceptable to conditions if they see an enforcement piece of the equation potentially. Or any other group, maybe ag or whatever that sticking point might be. Correct. And at the same time, Lighthouser argues, well, we have 301 sanctions under the 1974 trade agreement. We could always apply that. But I don't think that's going to satisfy members of the House or Senate, right? Because by experience, they want to see something that has been identified as a solution to this problem directly. Because they're not feeling good about the past enforcement. And that's, that is so they need something different. Laura, you were going to jump in? Um, yes, I just would also like to know, I think that House Republicans are watching very carefully to see how House Democrats um, react or if they react at all to a bill that's been introduced by Senators Wyden and Brown that would allow U.S. or Mexico Mexican governments to actually audit and inspect factories down in Mexico to make sure they're complying with the labor laws down there. And um, I think that would be something that would probably be of greater concern to House Republicans. But if it gains traction among the House Democrats, it may be. And you mean when you say greater concern that they're not favorable toward that or they're concerned that that may be an overreach potentially? I think so. Potentially yeah. an overreach. Um, you know, it kind of depends on how the language comes out in the wash. Right. And, and one of the reasons that the legislation in Mexico right now is so important is because it would go right to the issue 
of enforcement there. So if we end up with new legislation on labor rights in Mexico that not only allow you uh, the choice in terms of who's going to represent you in the union and the choice of whether or not you're going to join the union, but in addition, if you have labor courts to adjudicate this within Mexico, and that's part of the legislation, that may go a long way to satisfy these concerns. Lon, let me ask you, I mean, you, you, I know, work the Democrats, and labor always seems to be labor, environmental, human rights, kind of the three pockets, and there's other stuff too. Labor seems to be the one that I hear a lot on this, from Democrats at, at this point. Is that kind of what you're hearing, or are there other little pocket issues that Democrats are concerned about that maybe haven't got to the top yet? Kind of the inside scoop I'm trying to drag out of you. Sure, no, <laughs> labor is definitely the overwhelming issue. But um, as we've talked about enforceability and making sure that there's accountability in the trade agreement so that it's not just, from the Democrats' perspective, passing a trade agreement without any real enforcement behind it. it you know, environmental issues are always very important for the Democrats. You know, I mentioned the issue of biologics. I think there's a, a, there's a core caucus within especially the House on the Democratic side that is worried about um, rising costs of health care and associated with that the cost of drugs. And they view an extension of intellectual property protections for biologics, which is an increasing area of innovation in the pharmaceutical sector, um, as enshrining or locking in higher prices uh, because they won't come out as uh, generic options earlier. And, and this is kind of an interesting topic because the president has said multiple times trying to lower prescription drugs, this may conflict and it'll be interesting where that plays, Lori. Um, and I would add to that from a political partisan standpoint, which is um, Republicans certainly believe that the USMC has gone a long way to address a lot of the Democratic concerns over the years. But then it becomes a question if labor does not support it, even after we maybe perhaps make more changes, will there ever be a trade agreement that's good enough that right. they will support and, and, you know, that's one thing about these agreements because they continually work through a process. And at the end of the day, if it doesn't satisfy everyone, that old argument, you know, that's a good bill. In this case, even when they don't satisfy anyone, they're back at it again, no matter what happens. Let me ask, Milan, you said this, and then I'd love to get kind of a, a broad sweep on the dynamics of what's going on between – uh, leadership and the and administration. Before we do that, Senator Grassley has made some statements about lifting um, the steel and aluminum tariffs on Mexico and Canada. And, and I'm just trying to, for our listeners, what, what do you think, and I expect you to know the answer to this, uh, what do you think is behind the senator's thinking here? Because I know you just are right there. So. Well, absolutely. <laughs> uh, as a fellow Iowan, That's um, right. I think I can weigh in on this. Uh, Iowa's two largest trading partners are Mexico and Canada. For for the state. For the state. For their products that are for moving their, in and out. Yeah, specifically agricultural products. Mm -hmm. And so Senator Grassley is really paying attention to issues back home. And as long as uh, the administration's aluminum and steel tariffs remain in place, Canada and Mexico can potentially retaliate. And in fact, with Canadian national elections looming in October, uh, the Canadians are actually preparing retaliatory tariffs now. But so that's it's, it's like dominoes. Right. If you they play one off the other and if they don't get what they want in ag, then they have stuff over here in steel and aluminum and other plays that they can do. Absolutely. Congressman, let me ask you a question. And this is to really all three of you in the broader sweep. And that is so here we are 18 months from a presidential election. 
We got the president who's focused on right now on a variety of issues, but trade is going to be one of those for the president. This is his top, as you mentioned. How do you think, and I, and I don't know, you know, we only get to see the clips on TV once in a while when we see them sitting in the Oval Office, the leadership and the president. You just watch the body language. You can turn the voice off and you get a sense of what's happening. But in this one, it seems like there's a desire to try to figure out how to work together. So you think of the speaker's office and working with uh, the administration, also the minority office working with the minister. What do you think that dynamics? I mean, you, again, you're fresh off the hill, and and you were as a chairman and integral and in part of these conversations. What do you think is happening, Mark? I think that's the right assessment. I think there's a decision uh, to try to make this work, but uh, to do it. Uh, in a way that addresses some of the problems that existed in the previous agreement. If you uh, think back, uh, Speaker Pelosi had supported NAFTA, but she knows that some of the members felt uh, in on the Democratic side, and this is certainly true of the president's uh, acknowledgement, that on the Republican side uh, there were concerns about enforcement. So she is going to continue, I think, to advance these initiatives, uh, especially with respect to Mexico, on the enforcement uh, side of this. But I think uh, we're sort of reaching a consensus in terms of the changes that are occurring down there in labor law that may resolve that problem. In the meantime, I think there's growing awareness uh, in terms of how much the world economy depends upon the momentum of the United States leading on trade, and that if there's a perception of the U.S. backing off of that and losing that initiative, that a lot of the confidence in the international capital markets will be lost. So I think those in leadership understand there's a lot at risk here. Do we think that, and to anyone who wants to answer this, do we think that the, I mean, you you, you said it, uh, Mr. Chairman, and that is, what happens if the deal doesn't happen? You mentioned the concern around the world, people watching. It will have an impact to some degree on the economy. What that will be is, you know, all of us would love that crystal ball. But give me – anyone wants to give a little insight on that. I mean, how do you think people are watching, as the chairman said, the decision that's made here, good or bad, meaning yes or no on this? What do you think is going to happen? I mean, is that an impact? Do the negotiators worry about that, or do they just kind of this? We just got to deal with this one way or another. If it fails, it fails. But really, this has an impact globally in in the sense of the economy. No, that's Lord. absolutely true, and um, I think Congress members of Congress are always aware of that, and they realize that if the um, United States, which is the leader of the free mm-hmm. world, can't get their act together, then it's going to have a domino effect on other countries, let alone our own economic. Um, um, foundation in agreements that other countries might be trying to figure out too. Right. Well, and and quite honestly, there are probably a lot of people around the a lot of countries around the world that wouldn't mind it if we didn't have an agreement <laughs> because they would then take advantage of it competitively. Right. And I think that what these tariffs, all the tariffs that the president has put into place and threatening around the world, has made a lot more people, Republicans and Democrats, think about the impact that trade has mm-hmm. on their constituents, on their voters, on the economy. And um, it's, I think, made them a lot more careful and serious about how they consider it, and it's not necessarily only through a partisan lens. And, and let me explain also, Mark, I think where we'd really be hit 
is with our global competitors capitalizing on this and arguing that uh, that uh, you know basically our customers should move to more stable suppliers overseas so it would immediately impact uh, manufacturing and jobs so that that is another reason why keeping the momentum for trade and and uh, keeping US leadership uh, at the helm so that uh, we don't turn that steering wheel over uh, to our global competitors is important. I just oh, – Milan, go ahead, uh, please. I, I would just add that um, I think there's a very interesting dynamic going on between representatives of the administration and uh, members of Congress. And uh, with respect specifically to Speaker Pelosi, Ambassador Lighthizer is sort of playing the good cop role on behalf of the administration. He's embarked on a charm offensive, is up on the Hill. Quite often, um, Speaker Pelosi has said very positive things about uh, his willingness to come up there and brief them frequently, um, interacting with uh, you know several members of Congress to address their concerns and trying to offer up uh, potential solutions. On the other hand, uh, the president is playing a little bit of bad cop where uh, he threatens that if Congress doesn't um, ultimately ratify his trade agreement here, that he will unilaterally withdraw from NAFTA. And I think that is the major concern here. It's not really that we fail to ratify USMCA. It's that the president goes even further and blows up the current status quo and puts us back, you know, 25 years, but putting us back 25 years versus where we are isn't really the major threat. It's it's It goes to everything that Laurie and uh, Chairman Royce just said. It's putting us at a uh, disadvantageous position globally, but also devastating to our domestic economy, whether it's agricultural states, the Rust Belt, or border states. Lori, you, you, you got a, he got a rise out of you, whatever you said <laughs> no, there. No, <laughs> okay, not good. necessarily a rise. I just want to kind of add that um, in, in the nuts and bolts of how all of this works, while certainly the president you know, has a lot to say about trade and tariffs and everything, whether it's this administration or any administration, at a certain point when they send up their implementing legislation, it almost becomes irrespective of the president in many ways because then there is an internal um, process that goes to work. And while the U.S. Trade Representative Bob Lighthizer will still be very involved, it then becomes these internal whip teams on the Republican side, Democrat side, um, House and Senate, but mainly the House. And um, they'll all get to work in trying to persuade their colleagues to either approve it or disapprove it and also in that process will sort of flesh out what are their concerns that then they can take back to see if they can be addressed. Do you think the uh, – I got one or two last questions on this, and that is, is the House the leader on this and the Senate's kind of just waiting to, if the House can solve it? You know, sometimes it goes the reverse, right? That they, they, If the Senate solves whatever that issue is, then the House will go for it. But is this a little different because the way this agreement's been done in the past? Well, I would say, as a House person, that the House should be the leader on all things. But <laughs> As a um, former senator, I would say <laughs> most of the time you're right. <laughs> yeah, um, I agree with you. <laughs> well, a trade agreement is uh, technically considered a revenue bill. Right. And so all revenue bills under the Constitution must start in the House. But it seems like that's what's kind of happening. And you got a few senators just kind of popping up with some issues. But really, they're kind of watching the House work at all and then shift it over and then there might be minor tweaks, but really what's coming is the bulk of what probably the Senate will want to see. Yes. Is that the sense you're all getting? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, but uh, let me – I'll give you a real example, and then I want to ask you this question, and that is what do you think the one surprise, big surprise or a surprise might be that we just maybe 
don't see right now, but it's bubbling. But before I say that, I met with a company that um, utilizes paper products, recycled paper products. And, and the trade has hurt them because they pay tariffs going over with their product to get refined and coming back since there's all those trade wars happen with China, for example. And it's had a direct impact to their pricing of product. Now, the flip side of this, which is odd, she's now having conversations with domestic producers of figuring out that technology that doesn't have to go to China. So there's this kind of this weird dynamic that's going on. On one hand, she's paying more but it's forcing some conversation in U.S. markets. Some will say that's good. Some will say, well, that's just an inefficient market uh, manipulated by public policy and creating higher prices when it shouldn't. So it's kind of an interesting debate that this whole trade is starting to have all the way down. I mean, this is a small company, but they literally, you know, they work with the mom-and-pop grocery stores and fast food places and restaurants, and they sell this product, and they've had to explain and she ate part of the cost because it was too hard to explain what was going on. So she watches this in a weird way that we probably don't realize all the time. Well, I mean, that is one of the, I would I mean, say, it's a side, argument. Yeah, yeah. And it's, but it's also a side benefit. I mean, you would hope businesses would always be assessing um, where they should have their plants and processes located. Absolutely. However, I would also note that in under tax reform, if she's bringing <laughs> things get back tax here, in here somehow. if she's bringing it back here, then maybe part of it is she'll have 100% expensing or whatever to be able to start this And business. that's exactly, uh, she had brought that up. So it's kind of, I mean, everything touches in some way each, each policy that's done may have been tax policy, trade policy, and all integrates at some point. So what do you think? Here's, I mean, I think people are kind of who are listening. Okay, we got it. Trade's complicated. This is an important agreement. There's a little bit of tug of war going on on the many different issues. But what's the surprise? You know, here at the Brownstein firm, we we spend a lot of time advising clients on what's the strategy, what if, and then always we should be prepared for fill in the blank because we're trying to make sure our clients are positioned to respond as quickly as possible and be effective in that response for them. So in this one, what, what do you think is the surprise, or maybe there isn't any? Maybe it's just the the upside. The upside surprise, Mark, would be if we could work out with Canada the issue over aluminum and steel uh, tariffs, because if those were eliminated... And given the complexities of our supply chain, you've already seen the impact in in a slight um, uh, negative impact on economic growth. If we right. if we could get that worked out as part of this agreement, and get a general consensus in the hemisphere, that our real challenge is Beijing's lack of following the rules, we might also be able to resolve that problem with respect to Europe. Mm -hmm. And we've got really the United States, our neighbors, our allies around the world, all trying to follow a system with high standards and then free trade. Mm -hmm. We have Beijing as a competitor at the moment with a system of free trade and no standards. And it would behoove us to work out these agreements with our trading partners in a way that leaves us all able to better focus on getting enough leverage to enforce compliance with some set of rules in Beijing. That would benefit everyone. And that might be an upside of having a positive resolution here with Canada and Mexico. Laurie Milan, any surprises you think are hanging out there that, or is it just kind of 
business as usual. We've just got to work it through. Well, I would. I thought the chairman raised a really good point because it's my understanding behind the scenes, even the Europeans have been saying quietly that um, the president's activity, particularly as, a, as it regards China enforcement, was really necessary and need, just had to be done and was glad that someone was doing it because otherwise it was just all bets were off in terms of the global uh, trading market. So, But otherwise, I think that in terms of any surprises, I think the only surprise will be that it gets even better. There we go. Milan? To me, the president never fails to surprise. <laughs> Milan got the last word on that one. And I think in, in an odd way, I think we might all agree on that because we don't know yet. Uh, but I think it, it's an interesting um, issue because I, I think a lot of the issues, if not all of them, are now on the table. And people are – and the enforcement, which, which seems to have some common ground because of experience of past agreements. That is – you know, if you can have a great agreement, but if you don't have enforcement – it's irrelevant, and that's an important part of this equation. Well, and I think a surprise would be is if um, you do get significant labor support, which I think would be a wonderful there thing. We go. Because that's a good point. It, yeah. Because then it would demonstrate that we can do this in a bipartisan way that helps, hopefully, helps all sectors of our economy and all American workers. Oh, that's a, that's a good point. Let's end on that and say for, again, thank you all. Chairman Royce, thank you. Milan, Lori, thank you very much for being here. And to our listeners, we are always happy to bring you uh, news from Brownstein on a variety of issues we're talking about here internally, but also what's happening on the Hill. Thank you all. Thank you for listening to the Brownstein High at Farber Shrek podcast series. If you like what you hear, please subscribe and rate us on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app. Visit bhfs.com for more information.